welcome back to Marketing Sweats. I'm really excited to share today's conversation with you because I'm talking to one of my favorite marketing execs, Mr. Bruce Beagle, Senior Managing Partner of the Winterberry Group. Bruce has more than three decades of hands-on experience in building businesses from the ground up, and he has been an inspiration to me for some time as I've attended countless talks and workshops he gives about agency growth planning. He'll share his story. He began his career on Wall Street and eventually made his way to this middle ground sitting between agencies, consultancies, brands, and investment firms. And his roles have included strategic business planning, financing, MA, sales and marketing, data strategy, technology, and even financial management. I think you'll find him to be a specialist and thought leader in advertising and marketing services and agree with me that his business model is intriguing. He's led hundreds of strategy engagements for some of the world's leading marketers, marketing service providers, and marketing technology companies. I'm not lying when I say that his logo list is impressive. So if you're an agency or a marketer, there's something here for you, my friends, Mr. Bruce Beagle. I am so excited to talk to you because, like I said, you've been somebody I've been watching and following for a couple of years now. And as I've gotten the opportunity to get to know you a little bit better, you have a lot of rich information to share with our audience. So I'd love for you to tell our audience just a little bit about your background and how you got started in your current business. Kind of fell into it. I started on Wall Street many, many, many years ago before the first stock market crash. Uh, lived five years of that, decided that big companies weren't for me. I was in MIS at the time and shifted to join some friends and start a marketing technology company. Ran that, built that, ran that for seven years, and we sold that probably in 1997. Stayed home for about a month or so, and then some friends asked if I would join them in a data company. I didn't know what a data company did or what it was, but they said, hey, we need somebody who can be a president and CFO. And since I'd never tried being a CFO before, I thought that would be interesting as well. Came out the other side of that and we sold that business to an agency. And I had some friends in investment banking who said, would you care to join us if you don't do another startup right now? We have a brand called Winterberry Group that's in marketing research. Would you do that? And I said, it sounds interesting, but the gap that I saw in the market was there were a lot of great, smart consulting people. They didn't know our industry. And I felt that there was a real role in advertising and marketing and data and technology for somebody who was deep in, who could work quickly. So interesting. So I guess I never really understood the financial part of your background. So is that what you went to school for? You seem like a numbers guy at heart. I was a history major. No way. And I interned at the State Department, thought I was going into government, saw all those locked green file cabinets and said, yeah, this doesn't really work for me. What happened was when you start to write business plans for companies, there are two things. You can get one of those nice business plan software packages, or you can write them out from scratch in Excel. And I was fortunate enough that my father was a CFO and he said, go build it all from scratch. And I built income statements and cash flow models and balance sheets. And then when you start raising money, everybody wants to know what's underneath the numbers. What are the assumptions? So you do more spreadsheets and more numbers as you're raising money and getting involved in mergers and acquisitions. You know, you keep refining this until I did find myself getting rolled into a public company 
at one point and having to do quarterly financial reporting and 10Ks and 10Qs and realized I'm not really a CFO, but it seems to be that's my title right now. But it made me very aware. One, as a, as a business owner, always understand your capital table and always understand your P&L. So you keep your forecast for revenue in one pocket and your forecast on costs in your other pocket, and you know them inside out. Talk about how when you got to Winterberry, you sort of reframed what that business was all about and talk a little bit about what you guys do today and some of the targets that you serve. Right. So I probably spent the first six months reading strategy books, doing the research, thinking about the context of the market that we were in. There was no social, there was no mobile, but there was there was some paid media and digital paid media, but it was pretty rough. There was a promise. But direct mail was the dominant channel, and, and we looked at print and cable and radio and, and all the measured media. And I said, you know what, there's, there's a role here, but it needs to be scaled to the size of the companies in our market. The majority of the companies in this market are mid-market. So we were part of an investment bank, Petsky Prier, and it really fit their group of clients. Yeah. So people would call bankers. So every, they always call bankers for advice. Bankers are driven by transactions. So this was a way for the team at Petsky to pass those people over to somebody who would spend the time to give consulting advice. Absolutely. I love to talk about middle market. That's kind of our focus too at Semanal. You know, we do work with some of the big players, but we really like to work with those mid-sized regional companies that you can, you know, work at the highest levels and work with executive teams. Is that kind of what drew you to that target as well? I think when you work in the middle market, you go right to the top very quickly. Strategic decisions are made by the board, the investors, and typically a handful of of C-level executives. And when you're doing strategic planning work, you need to be at that level because they're the ones that are going to make the investments in growth. So they hold the purse strings and they either agree with the focus and, and direction of the business, or if they don't, your strategy winds up as a report on a, on a table somewhere. But in addition to working with brands and you work with, you know, now big brands, small brands, everything in between your, your roster is pretty amazing, but you also work with agencies, you work with private equity, walk me through some of your verticals. So the three groups that we serve are really the supply side of the advertising and marketing world. So it's the agencies, the data companies, the technology companies, lead gen companies. If it is part of that supply chain of marketing or advertising, we have probably worked across it over some 450 to 500 engagements. Along the way, we started to get some calls from some of the brands, some very large enterprise brands said, you know the supply chain so well, help us to work better with them. Because the information coming downstream is it's not usually complete, it may or may not be accurate, and it's definitely not timely. So the three things that you want as part of that process, a lot of that gets broken, a lot of wait time, a lot of, oh yeah, we told you that, but we're going to go change our mind. So it was, how do you re-engineer upstream within a brand? to make that supply chain work better. And so by looking at what we call the full system from top to bottom, you can actually design a better marketing model. Is that then also what gives your investor clients confidence that when you're in the middle of that competing force equation that you're going to help streamline some of the bugs? 
Right. So what, what happened was that the investors came, the private equity, not really venture investors, but private capital, the two transactions from 30 million to three, four, five billion dollars. They wanted that industry knowledge and they needed somebody who knew both where the industry was going, where it is, what the competitive landscape looks like and how you can assess management. If you've worked with 100 and something agencies, you have a pretty good idea of what makes an agency tick. And if you're helping them grow and you're look and you're helping them fill their gaps, they assume that you know how to assess properly. So the private equity firm started to bring us in initially, help us do the assessment, what they call commercial due diligence. That evolves with some of them to, as soon as you're done with diligence, we want you to do the strategy for the business. And then when you're done with the strategy, since you know the business, do the strategy, work with management. You've now worked with management and strategy can be organic or inorganic. And so we started doing target identification, acquisition criteria, integration planning, outreach, et cetera. I was going to ask you about this later, but let's jump to it now. So what have you learned about agencies in that process, knowing that we are an agency and it sounds like you've worked with lots of leaders and you know what private equity is looking for. So what's working and what's not out there? Agencies are about people. They're people organizations. They can have people who are working on technology. They can have people working in creative. They can have people working in data science. So there are a lot of capabilities that come into it, but it's really that that intersection of creative technology and people. And they come in all shapes or sizes. You know, we see kind of 15 different agency cores. You could be a healthcare agency. You could be a creative agency. You could be a fully integrated agency, a CRM agency. And the global services industry for agencies is a couple hundred billion dollars. Last time we, we sized global, it was maybe $275 billion worth of services across agency and digital transformation. So it's a big market with a lot of players. And that takes out technology, media costs, all of that. But that's really the market that the agencies, and there are tens and tens of thousands of agencies. I know. And you recently shared a model with me from some of the research you did where you talked about all the segments of agencies. You know, where is Mantle on this continuum and what are the subcategories within? So I guess my question is, as more and more agencies in the universe are trying to become very niche so that they can scale and succinctly tell their message to the right targets. Do you agree with that philosophy or do you believe that you can do more than one thing and do it well? I think you have to do more than one thing and do it well. And if you look at the history of how agency models and holding companies have evolved, but the holding companies, they would take a look and say, all right, here's something new that's coming, mobile. And at the beginning, there were mobile agencies or there were search agencies and they were specialists and they grew their special. They've got to a certain scale, typically 10, maybe $20 million in revenue, big enough where somebody goes, oh yeah, that's a real capability. We need that. As a holding company, you just go buy that company because you're, instead of using operating expense to grow it, you use a CapEx. Yeah, that makes a lot of good sense. So another question I had for you, because I know you focus on growth. When you work with agencies, how much do you believe that an agency needs to be committed to growth versus sustaining their business? 
so many agencies, at least in our network globally, have built their business on one or two major clients, right? So how do you keep those clients happy um, since they are your bread and butter while also sort of scaling your business? Yeah. So the first part, the commitment to growth. You can run a lifestyle business. It generates for the owners a good income. People have a steady job. And at the beginning, that works really well. Over time, what happens is you've had people work there a long time and your cost base starts to increase and your experience base doesn't get broader. So without fresh blood coming into the agency, the agency can get stale. So the risk of, of just running lifestyle is getting stale and not bringing that new idea and that new thinking to the agency. It also cuts off career paths. If you don't grow, it's hard to give those people the growth opportunities while remaining profitable. And if you have that one or two pillar clients, there's nothing wrong. You know, there's always risk of having one large account. If that account goes, it puts the entire model at risk. But rather than fight the growth of, of a single large account or two large accounts, don't fight the growth. Take as much of that growth as you can, but harvest the profit from that account to develop additional clients. You may never catch up to the size of those two accounts, but if you develop other large-scaled accounts to complement it, that's going to be fine too. It gives people room to grow. Otherwise, the people on your team are also stuck in that one account, and you're going to be the creative exec on that account forever. Right. Talk a little bit though about, okay, so you want to reinvest those funds. Do you go after brands in your niche? I'm sure there's some combination of all of the above. Where are you today? What is the feasibility of taking these things into the market? And then how do you prioritize all that? So can you dig in a little bit to your sort of growth planning model and how you help not just agencies, but companies scale? So the process remains the same and it's keyed off adjacencies. So what you're looking at is, okay, let's we say you start with the current situation, assess the business, build a SWOT, really understand what's working, what isn't. But when you start to look at the opportunities, you have to say, okay, are they near or far from what I do? You know, it's like somebody who is a creative agency is not going to reinvent itself as an analytics consultancy overnight. That's a really big jump. There's a lot of space in between those two places. So what you're looking at is what are those opportunities that are available to the company that are closest? Then you need to look and say, well, is that area growing or shrinking? So what's the competitive landscape look like? Can you make, if you can't make money there, it may look great, but it's not a good idea. What is the agencies that you've worked with biggest blind spot in that process? My guess, you know, as executives, we love to sit around the table and brainstorm the what ifs and the possibilities without really having the numbers behind it sometimes. Is that really kind of what you see is not doing enough of the financial due diligence before there's an investment? They don't really know what the profit potential is, nor do they know what the executional and investment risk. It's like usually there are a lot of really good ideas at the table, but some ideas are going to be better. So the other thing is prioritization. You walk in and they've got 20 great ideas and everybody owns an idea. And when you look at them in isolation, it looks like a good idea. So then you go, well, why don't you do my idea? Well, I've got 20 people. I have 20 ideas. Let's develop a way of ranking those and prioritizing. So I, maybe I should do these three things this year, these three things the next year, and three more things after that. If I try to do it all at once, the probability of success goes to about 10%. 
we've really adopted Lencioni's advantage model where you have like, this is our most important right now. And these are our three defining objectives for this year. But it really takes a structure and a rigor to facilitate those conversations and get folks to make decisions. And so I, I guess I'd ask you some for some insight or wisdom on how you sort of do that well. What I didn't talk about that Winterberry does is we are partnered with some of the associations, the IAB, used to be the DMA, the ANA, and we write white papers. So we are the group that sizes the market for direct mail because that's where we started. But we've become the group that sizes the data because nobody had a number and I needed our numbers for our strategy. So we built the models to figure out what is that spend. The only way you get to that spend because it's a portion of other spend is to actually look at the entire landscape. So we follow the money. Where is spend shifting? But that research and the white papers that we do, usually in emerging segments of the market, enables us to get on the phone and talk to everybody. So I'm in the middle right now of working on a white paper on identity. Two years ago, we did a paper and the market was in one place. The market for identity has evolved significantly. And so you you have to forecast. If you're going to do a strategy that takes you two years to execute, don't do it based on where we are right now. You've got to do it based on where the market's going. Since you went there, I know that I wanted to dig into identity with you. When you shared that with me on our last phone conversation, the word identity wasn't part of our vernacular, but obviously it's a buzzword that we need to be talking about. But talk to our audience about why identity is such an important issue for us as marketers right now. Okay. So it's been an issue for a really long time. So what's happened is we had a data world and we used marketing data to do targeting and direct marketing. But identity is about profiles. And the biggest difference is marketing databases are different than customer databases. So CRM databases is what you have on your customer. The marketing database is what you have on the entire ecosystem. And the profiles in there are now, the terminology has become those are identities. They have become the identity that you have both in the physical world and the digital world. So as if you were talking to a kindergartner, Bruce, walk me through what a best practice is in terms of a data technology stack, you know, because we hear words like CRM and CDP and all of these things, but like foundationally, how do you get your data layer working all the way to your activation layer in terms of pushing information out into the universe? So let's start with the data layer. People will start with the application. Okay. It's like I have an email campaign management platform. I need to get a list in there. So I've been collecting email addresses. I shove a list in there. That's my data. And maybe they kept all of their data in that platform because they were a digital first direct consumer brand. And effectively my, my company database lived there for marketing. It lived inside my email platform. As companies get bigger, that data can't be contained in there, nor does that platform cover enough channels. So, and it was never designed to be that system of record for your data. So you start to move that out. And we used to move it out into a marketing database, which is now effectively a CDP. And a CDP keeps those profiles and has a PII and non-PII, and it leverages data hygiene to keep it clean. So I've now added CDP into my data layer. And there used to be also for the digital world to do digital segmentation and paid media, I used the DMP. We're starting to see those DMP segmentation capabilities fold into the CDP platform. So that differentiation is slowly going away. 
From that layer, you move up into orchestration and decisioning. Having all sorts of data is wonderful, but I need an analytics environment so I can go in and look at the data and drive insights and say, hey, let's build some models that'll help us make that next best offer, make that right decision. That decisioning layer relies on the data layer. And so once I've made a decision, I have to say, okay, where does that go? That offer needs to go on mobile, that needs to go on desktop, that needs to go in store. So that orchestration layer tells you which applications do I put this into? So effectively, what you're looking at is applications which right now have decided, oh, we're going to add AI, we're going to add machine learning. They're moving backwards into the decisioning and orchestration and maybe all the way back into CDP to become a stack. So three layers, data layer, decisioning and orchestration, and then application. That makes such good sense. How are you advising agencies and clients right now who maybe still are stuck on CDP? They don't even have the technology in place. They don't have the parent-child relationships figured out, but they know they need to get there. So I'd probably start with find the data. Believe it or not, half of our discovery projects are where is your data? Who's got it? There are lots of decisioning and orchestration platforms. Making a decision is one part of it. Optimizing which means I need a feedback loop for that data. Something happens, get me the information on what happened so I can be better the next time. I think we are doing a lot of decisioning and we're not doing optimization well. Optimization is what's going to bring us that effectiveness and efficiency that everybody wants. There's an opportunity to do more optimization as the next step. This wasn't on maybe some of the questions I had planned to ask you, but where does content live in this? Are you guys doing any research on that? So we've looked at content. We haven't done any research. We are also doing a research study on decisioning right now. You can't do any of this without the right content. So people are like, I'm just going to be data centric. I need the content. I need the offers. I need them packaged in a way, whether it's B2B and when we think about it as content, whether we think about it as advertising, but I need the right content to react to the offers. So if I can be great, I have a thousand segments, I have one piece of content, it doesn't do me any good because no matter what the offer is, it's using that one piece of content. So if you think about variable content, you need a lot of content, you need it organized in a database with a taxonomy so that you can put the right content with the right offer at that right time. Content lives in every silo, on every file server, on everybody's desktop, and pulling that together so that your applications have access to it is a critical component of all this. We have this whole data stack that you've got to get right, and now you have a whole content or creative stack you have to get right, and it starts with understanding what you have, where it is, so you can add the right things to it. Right. And sometimes when brands buy that enterprise technology, maybe at the time that they purchased it, they didn't understand the requirements of where we would be today. So they're not getting the most out of the technology. How do you advise clients when they're in that situation where they purchase something? It's just not working for them anymore. Talk to us about how you approach those conversations. So you you look at it from a use case perspective. Think of it as an outcome issue. What are the outcomes I'm trying to achieve? What are the tools that I need to help me achieve that? And tools could be people, process, platform, data. 
you know, there are four components. What happens often is somebody says, I'm going to solve this problem, just add this technology. They don't change the organization. They don't change their process. They don't give it the right data. And, and all of a sudden, oh, the technology doesn't work. But look at whether I can get more than one of my outcomes as a benefit of leveraging this technology. If I'm not getting the outcomes I need, I have to look at my four components and say, what's preventing that? And if I've got 10 applications that are all separate, I have an email application separate from what I'm doing in direct mail separate. You know, if they're all different and separate, maybe I get some efficiency by putting it in one technology platform. Every time there's a new channel, there seems to be a new technology. And okay, now how do I add influencer into this? How do I add affiliate into this? Oh, wait, that's in a different silo in my organization. So do I have a technology problem or do I have a silo problem? Bringing marketing operations together and bringing the technology into more of a unified stack matters. And you also have to look and say, at what point has the technology outlived its life? And so it's, you shouldn't have just a roadmap that adds technology. You should have a roadmap that subtracts technology. For me, one of the biggest takeaways from our conversation thus far this morning is really this idea that you're in the people business. You're bringing people around a table to have hard conversations about how do we need to work in the future. And one of the biggest questions I get from my clients is what does the marketing organization of the future need to look like? And you just used the word marketing operations. I think that's a really important buzzword that we need to start being clearer about how to make marketing operations happen effectively. So think about... You know, there, there's a lot of, of discussion about in-housing or insourcing or whatever you, term you want to use, which says, I'm going to bring this back in. I'm going to do it myself. Those conversations typically crop up when the economy is going really well. And somebody says, I could do better. If I brought it in, I might get an extra 5%, 10%, either efficiency or effectiveness lift. And people start to expand their marketing organization or their IT organization or whatever the other function is. All of a sudden... The world changes like it has now. Now you take a really good hard look. My job is to build product and we sell these products. My job is not to be a marketing agency. What we believe is you need the right blend of what should be in-house and what should be at the agency. But you should look at that whole system, at the holistic model and say, there are things that belong in-house, typically strategy, some of the analytics maybe some of the technology management. And there are things that are better to be out of house where you want experience, variability, pre-built connectors of technology, all sorts of good reasons to be outside. And then you need to blend it in and examine the process so that it works really smoothly. Get that machine running in a blended model and you're going to be very successful. So Bruce, I've seen through my past few years, you know, big brands bringing in the big consultancies and they're mapping all this out, people, process, data, technology, and you end up with these beautiful artifacts that live in a wall or in a PowerPoint that can be sold upwardly to leadership. How do you and your organization help ensure that these conversations that end up on paper become actionable? Because we actually understand both the marketer's organization and how brands work, and we've built agencies. So we know how both sides look. And therefore, you can say very specifically, this belongs here and why it belongs and why it's better out 
And what is the organizing principle? If you've built an agency matrix and you've built a PMO and you understand how that all works together, you can overlay the principles on top of the marketer organization. So they function the same way. But it's that experience of how does this actually work in the blind spot? The brand says, go do this. The agency makes magic happen. They don't actually want to know exactly how all of that magic has occurred, just that magic comes out the other end. But because we understand how the magic is made and how the brand is thinking, you can bring them together so they can work better together. And that makes an actionable plan over a theoretical plan. I'll share with you and our listeners that one of our largest customers is actually just two or three blocks down the road from us. And so over time, many of our employees actually go work there, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a bad thing. It's been a really great thing for our business. But what has worked in that capacity is we end up having a shared language of how marketing gets done. And so it almost sounds like what you're saying is for the brands and the supply side to work together, that shared process model, it's got to be there so they can actually talk to each other and not miss each other. You have to communicate. Communication is the biggest thing. And the more complex your supplier organization is, the harder that gets. One of the things brands do is they create acronyms that mean something to them. That acronym may actually be the same acronym we use, like CDP. CDP could be the centralized data processing thing that goes on in IT. And they'll just use the term CDP. If they say, get me a CDP, we all go think, oh, that's one of these hundred platforms over here that do this very specific thing. And they'll talk across each other. Identity. We wrote an RFP and we needed identity management to be part of that. Three agency marketing service providers responded and three management consulting firms, IT consulting firms. What came back was three proposals for what we think of as marketing identity that crosses, you know, profiles and all of that, and three proposals that were forge rock, giga, et cetera, how to do authentication when somebody logs in. So identification versus identity, because I didn't write it just right, three different views of the world. And IT thought we were right and marketing thought we were right. So we thought, and it was like, oh, let's clarify this. That makes total sense. It really speaks to the power of that ontology of like the organization understanding what words mean and having a shared understanding of what those things are. Words have meaning to different people, so it makes sense. things I want to talk to you about before I let you go, Ruth. So do you live in the space of helping brands and agencies find each other? Do you do that matchmaking thing and then help us understand? You've talked about this a little bit already this morning, but you know what makes a good partnership ecosystem after you determine what you want to insource and what you want to outsource? How do you consult on all of that? So we generally don't do agency pitch. We spend more time helping the agencies figure out who they should be targeting that are best fit for their services. And that's exciting work. I love that strategic planning piece. Circling back, talk a little bit more about what your investor customer wants right now, what they're looking for. What are some of the trends that you see investors looking for? Do you predict more 
mergers and acquisitions of buying up of the market? Or do you see the, the private equity wanting to dump more into these startup technology type firms? So we don't advise venture capitalists, but we work with a lot of them. We will see continued mergers and acquisitions that, you know, it is always, you know, I can grow organically or I can grow inorganically. And sometimes if I'm entering a new area, whether it's a new geography or adding a new capability, in order to get credibility and scale it more rapidly, buying is a much more efficient way to do it. So we look at geographic expansion. If I am a New York agency and I want to expand and serve companies in the Midwest, it's going to be really hard to just do it from New York. And also different regions have different culture. So you can go and just establish a, a foothold somewhere, or you can look for somebody with similar capabilities where you can expand your footprint. And so it's, it's kind of nuanced, but there are a couple of different approaches to getting there. So there are two types of investors. Those are saying, I've got a portfolio company, I want to add this to it. So those are add-ons, those are combinations, those are mergers. And then there are investors who are saying, I'm going to invest in this company, and it will be the platform. You know, so I've got a good base. I've got longstanding relationships with clients. I've got some form of recurring revenue in the agency world. That would be retainer versus project work. I've got differentiation in how I bring this to market. So there are a lot of, of different options, and it depends on their investment thesis. Some will never invest in anything that is technology. Some only want to invest in technology. You know, some are like, they have a thesis around data and analytics as part of data-driven marketing and that we're going to continue to evolve from brand to performance. So they want those that are performance agencies. And that's the core. And then they'll add to that. And they want to take a company and they want to build it up, make it bigger, et cetera. But ultimately, they are going to sell it. There are family offices that, you know what, they may hold it for the next 50 years. But most of them are looking to sell you know, within some window. And it's not two years, three years. They really do have a five-year or even seven-year window. Opportunistically, they will take offers if they come in. But they rarely will see the return on their investment in a short period of time that they would need for their partners. So every private equity firm has a different thesis. The diligence questions are pretty similar. Do we have the right management team? Do they have the right clients? Do they have the right focus? Do they have the right level of profitability? Such a fascinating aspect of our industry in terms of how private equity can help an organization scale, but also just impact the company culture. And I'm sure you see a lot of that too. Culture, there needs to be a cultural fit between the investors. And so there's a lot of dinners that go into this. There are a lot of management meetings. You spend a lot of time. Part of the reason we are so frozen in the investment world right now, very hard to go spend a lot of time with management teams if you are all at home. But we've, we've seen a lot of that part of the world freeze for the moment, but they're not stopped. What they're doing is thinking about where should we look as we get through this? I'm glad you brought that up. I find that all of us now sort of, we're busier than ever because we're trying to connect all the technology dots. But at the same time, there's like almost this think space to think about how is this going to change us and how are we going to come out on the other side? And so sort of what advice do you have for marketers right now to leverage this time to grow when we get past this? So once we get through the crisis mode and we've done some of the resetting and some of the verticals, whether you're in travel and hospitality, some significant parts of the retail economy, their revenue is down so significantly, they have to triage. But for most verticals, 
what marketers need to be thinking about is how is the world going to change when we come through this? Are people going to still do events the same way they did events? How is experiential and experiences going to change? And therefore, how do I have to adapt both my marketing strategies and my marketing operating model, how I manage my own organization? And things that we they didn't believe were possible, maybe some of those are, are possible, including distance communications. So I think that, yes, you should be doing that strategic planning right now. I would say we're still too in the right now for most to be worried about that. But I do believe as we get to the as we get over the curve and you start coming down the other side and there's stability and some visibility, that's the time you start to plan. If you've got the money that you can invest in some planning, you may actually have some of the time to do that and some of the talent. I hope that that's true for both your business and mine, that within a matter of months, people are ready to start having those conversations. We're almost up on our time, Bruce, but I, I, I like to end all of my conversations. First of all, just thanking you. I'm, you've been in the business a long time. You've worked with a lot of the big players. What are some of the things that you just hold so true? They've become part of your core beliefs, your learnings, that maybe just words of wisdom that you'd like to pass on to our listeners. I think the very first thing was there are a lot of really smart people out there. You need to get them directed and focused in the right way. If you're in the business of giving advice, always assume everybody else in the room is smarter than you are. It doesn't mean they're willing to work harder, and it doesn't mean that their point of view is always correct. But helping somebody learn is a bit of a sales process. You need to sell them on why they need to do something. So I've found that leading with the facts tends to keep you out of trouble. Good advice. But it also sounds like you're saying stay curious. Ask a lot of questions. Always ask a lot of questions. Always keep learning. You know, we're, as a company right now, we have four white papers in process. And we are calling literally dozens of executives, personally as managing directors with our teams, so that we can learn. We can get them on the phone. They're at home. They're looking for somebody to talk to. And we're going to use this period to learn so that when we come out, we've got a pretty good idea how to advise. And when you want to stop learning and settle in, you should be probably in a different business. Agree. This is what keeps me in the agency business is just the endless curiosity, the constant learning every day, the switching gears. So I am more than a little jealous of your business model, Bruce, in the sense that you get to talk to these executives every day and hear what they have going on. So Again, thank you, thank you, thank you. I feel so honored to have had you on the show and I do hope that we can keep in touch. Misty, thank you so much for having me on today. Well, as windy as that conversation was, I can't hang up the phone with Bruce without being inspired to want to grow. He's so connected and able to consult on even how to think about our businesses that you just wanna spend more time with him. Plus, the fact that he spends much of his time researching trends in the market with some of the biggest brand CMOs, that is a man after my heart. What an amazing way to spend your time. I hope he'll give me an understudy assignment sometime soon. If you liked what Bruce had to say, or if you think you might be able to leverage his genius, reach out to me and I'll get you connected. You can ping me directly on LinkedIn by searching for Misty Dykema or connect with us at marketingsweats.com or semantle.com. And if you liked this interview, give us a review. A simple scroll with five stars is great, but a comment is even better. We read them all and would love to connect with you. And download all episodes of Marketing Sweat Season 2 at marketingsweats.com or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Apple Play, or Spotify. 
Talk soon, marketers. Check back for more real-life accounts from hardworking pros.